So generally, at least once a month, I'd like to do just questions and answers. Last week, I did a long talk about concentration. There was no time to have a dialogue about it. <coughs> so I like to ask people to reflect for a minute or two on what question, and here's how we could think about it. If I call on you, what question will you ask? Right? Um, we might do it this way where I just kind of survey and then pick you. Right? <laughs> so you might think about what question might be most vital to you or most interesting to you or might be about your practice or about your meditation or about some part of the Dharma, the Buddhist teaching might be the hardest question you can think of for me to answer. Might be the most fun question. Might be the most taboo question. There we go. That's the secret question you thought you couldn't ask. And especially if you've been coming and you've never asked the question, it's nice to get to, to for me to hear what your question is or might be and just to have a little interaction with you. So please consider if you've never asked the question to um, be open to that. And if you'd stand. Um, and I've been coming since last September and uh, have developed a really wonderful daily practice. And then recently started um, a romantic relationship with someone I've had a 14-year friendship with. And I feel like I've <laughs> forgotten everything I know mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and have just really, really had such a hard time quieting my mind. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and it's not been fun at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I just uh, don't know what exactly the question is. But, uh, so there's some question about having a practice, having a romantic relationship, your practice goes to hell. And, <laughs> and, you know, and it's hard to quiet your mind. Okay? So I think that's a great question to ask. Um, One of the ways we might think about this that may be most helpful is to think about practice as its own relationship. Like you're starting this new relationship. Well, you started a relationship with practice last September. And it has its own problems, like any relationship. Actually, a better way to say it may be it has its own life, like any relationship. There are times when we're closer. There's times when we're further away. There are times when we're totally in love with practice. There are times when we're wondering, what are we doing with this person or this practice? Um, There are times when we think it's all over, I'm never going to practice again. And then it's like all of a sudden you're in love again, and it's like, oh, how did that happen? um, Practice is alive, and um, 
Um, so one way to really consider it is it'll go every which way. All kinds of things will happen over the life of your practice. Now, maybe I should have said this first, but it, 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 it's helpful for us to consider, well, what do we mean when we say practice? Are you talking about the meditation practice? Because that's only a small part of your practice. You know, that's maybe an hour a day, let's say, generally on a, as a daily practice, or 20 minutes a day, or whatever it is. But your practice, to pay attention, to be present, to watch the, what motivates you, or, or, or um, what your intention is in each moment, and, and wh- how are we living our life? How are we enacting uh, our mindfulness, our concentration, how are we allowing, how are we staying present throughout the various circumstances of our day in order to allow the, very, the, the, um, the heart's um, wisdom to express itself in our daily life? That's practice. Our practice is not limited to sitting on the cushion. Uh, if it was, we'd have to sit on the cushion all the time. But our practice is our life. And then, so how do we bring the, um, the blessings of sitting into our life? And implied in your question, and you said it at the end, you said, and I can't quiet my mind. Implied in that is that meditation, which is often about quieting the mind, means to be, means that then we should have a quiet mind all the time. That, that's not exactly the teaching. The teaching is, can we pay attention to the mind? Can we pay attention to the body? Can we pay attention to the heart? And sometimes the mind is not quiet at all. Especially if you're having a new romantic relationship. Probably the body's not so quiet, the heart's not so quiet, and the mind's not so quiet. Can we pay attention to that? So instead of, sometimes we'll often think about meditation as like settling down, calming down, getting present right here, and it looks like sitting, right? It looks like the Buddha, you know? It's it's quiet and still. And that's fine for meditation, but that might not be the right or the most beneficial uh, attitude if we look at the rest of it, what about when there's a lot of energy, when there's a lot of feeling, when there's a lot of um, aliveness? What about a meditation that's big, expansive, robust, open, dynamic? That's also possible in meditative practice. That we can be mindful of that. And mindful doesn't mean, oh, we're just trying to calm it down. No, let it rip. Is, is really, it's my metaphor a lot for practice, is, or my guideline, excuse me, it's my guideline, which is what does it mean to allow our experience fully without, um, without acting it out necessarily and without uh, suppressing or repressing it? That's the razor's edge in practice. That's where practice becomes quite dynamic, quite alive quite human that way. We get to be full human beings. We're not trying to just be statues. That's, that's not exactly the goal. The statue is describing a quality of mind. 
But often we mistake, we think we should end up looking like the statue. None of you look like a statue to me. Look much more alive and vibrant, juicy, human. And so can we pay attention to our humanness? Can we pay attention to our aliveness? In its full range, falling in love and that whole catastrophe, right? <laughs> Have fun. That, that might be, a, you know, you said that, oh, and it's not been fun. See what happens if you don't try to quiet your mind, but instead you try to sit with all that energy and all the thoughts and all the aliveness that might be there right now and let it rip and find your, find your center in the middle of it instead of getting rid of it or, you know, reining it in even. Don't rein it in. And you can, you can sit in the middle of it and just notice, you know, it'll feel like a wave or oceans or it feel huge or like a sun or a universe. Just go with the felt sense. See what happens. See what it's like to be mindful of that, of being a whole universe expanding. I have a question about letting it rip. Um. Letting it rip. <laughs> what about it? Well, it, when unwholesome states come... Stand up. Thank you. When wholesome states come, it's very easy to let them be there. Uh -huh. It feels really good. Uh -huh. But when unwholesome states come, how much do we let them be there and how much do we resist So, and what do you, okay, so the question is, letting it rip's okay when it's an, a wholesome, quote, wholesome state of heart or mind, and it's not so okay when it's unwholesome, quote, state of heart or mind, and how much do you let it rip and how much do you resist it? How much do you say I'm not going to go there? Okay, and what are you calling an unwholesome state? Um, I guess the opposite of the opposite of saying openness. So closeness. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Or um, like contracted. Contracted. Yeah. I'm, I'm as you speak. I'm reminded of. Um, uh, Sayadaw Upandita, one of the most more traditional Burmese Sayadaws, who when people cry, he, he was talking about people crying, and he said, if you're going to cry, cry your eyes out. If you're going to cry, cry your eyes out. Like, cry it out all the way until it's not there anymore. Um, there's different... Um, views about how to work with quote unwholesome states of heart and mind. I don't even like that word these days. I like unskillful, skillful. It's a little more accurate, I believe. Um, but it, truth be told, I don't think any state of heart and mind is unskillful or unwholesome unless we uh, believe it and act on it. And then, then it's a problem if we act on our aggression then it's a problem. If we act on our sexuality in ways that are harmful, then it's a problem. If we act on our out of fear or ignorance, then it's a problem. But if we're just experiencing fear, if 
we're just experiencing contraction, we're learning about it. We're learning about part of what it is to be a human being. Human beings open and close, they get contracted, they get free. Um, human beings have fear, desire, lust, aggression, hatred, anger. It's all part of being a human being. It's not necessarily a problem unless we're unconscious of it, unless we're in the thrall of it, unless we believe it, take it to be something that's true that we need to act on. And part of what happens, part of what I see happens is that all of us are drawn to the Dharma, I believe, because of the beautiful ideals that the Dharma presents us of wisdom, of compassion, of loving kindness, of joy, of um, realizing our interconnectedness, of seeing the interconnectedness, not just us, of all beings. Um, seeing the, the, um, that there is suffering and that's a possibility of freedom from suffering. We're drawn to these ideals and they're wonderful. But uh, at least from my perspective, what I've seen is that sometimes people try to get there mechanically. And by that I mean we try to do it without actually staying present in the reality of our experience. And I very much trust the reality of our experience at this point. I very much trust. I trust aggression. I trust anger. I trust fear. They're not horrible. They're not bad. They can be difficult to be with. We haven't been trained to learn how to be mindful, and mindful means to sit right in the middle of that experience, to find our ground, to find our body and the body, how the body feels when we're contracted, to, to pay attention to our heart when it's contracted, to see what our mind says when we're contracted, and to not have to act on it, but actually be compassionate to our own contraction rather than rejecting of it. Because the rejecting of our experience means it's going to go somewhere hidden. It's going to go somewhere hidden. It's going to be so, it's, that energy has to go somewhere. And so I don't, I don't believe in rejecting our experience. I, I, I believe that rejection creates what's sometimes called in psychology the shadow. It'll emerge somewhere else. It'll come out in some unconscious way. And that our practice here is really to bring the light of mindfulness and the light of compassion on this human experience and liberate it through that awareness. And so that's, that's, so saying let it rip is in the service of li liberating the contraction, liberating the anger, liberating the fear. It's not, it's not in the service of actually indulging it. It's, it's a skillful means in order to allow the fear, or the anger, or the contraction, or whatever it might be, the sadness, to self-liberate. Because if we jump an octave, if we jump down an octave, what is it? What is fear? What is anger? It's a contingent state of mind based on conditions that is impermanent. There's nothing solid there. It's only when we identify with it that it becomes a thing, it becomes solid, it becomes, it's me, I'm angry. And now, and I'm going to be angry, and I'm going to act out of my anger. 
instead of seeing it for what it is, a contingent experience that arises, sustains for a while, and then passes away. And when we can start to see that, then we can also start to pay attention to where are we seeing that from? What part of us begins to have this perspective of seeing our, our experience, our body, our feelings, our emotions, our mind? There's a part of us that can pay attention to every part of our experience. And then we see that part that's paying attention is not identified in the same way. Is not in the thrall of that experience. That there's something that's free. And then we can start to see, well, how do we want to respond when we get scared or hurt or angry or when we're attracted to a person or 20 people or however many you're attracted to tonight? Does <laughs> that, does that help? <laughs> Let it rip, but keep it to yourself. A little bit, that's a way to say it. But, but not keep it to yourself because it's bad or you have to hide it or should be ashamed of it or there's something wrong with it. It's more, it's in other words, keep it to yourself because it's yours, it's what the Dharma's presenting you in order to find your freedom. It's what the conditions of your life of your karma is actually presenting us moment by moment. Reality is presenting us with exactly what we need, we would say, from a Dharma perspective. Reality is presenting us with this moment to pay attention, whatever this moment brings. Okay? Say the end of the relationship, right? You know, you got a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. That's not exactly what you want. Right. I can stand there and watch that fear, but at the same time, I still want to act on it and not have this relationship end. Mm-hmm. Now, running rings around myself with Buddhist doctor, and I can say, well, that's the truth of that person. And well, what, what can I do? Stay with your truth. Your truth may be you don't want the relationship to end. Then, Doesn't mean you can make it not end. Right, but am I, am I only acting on my fear or acting on my fear? No, you'll, you'll see. Don't, you know, this is a really good point because sometimes we're in such a hurry to figure it out. Don't, what's the rush? Let's see. The worst thing you can do is make a mistake. <laughs> we're, we're all going to make a lot of mistakes. I'm quite serious. Part of learning the Dharma is learning from our mistakes. The worst thing you can do is say, oh, I'm acting out of my fear. You know, okay, you act, you do something, don't, don't do anything too bad, but you know, you, you call somebody and you realize you're calling out of fear. So you don't call again. Or maybe you even call again out of fear and you see, oh, I'm still calling out of fear. It's not so easy to change our habits. But what's our attitude towards ourself and the movement? And, and to see, okay, this is fear. And then maybe the next time you'll see the impulse to make the phone call. You say, okay, let me stay with the fear for one minute. Not just observe it, 
and this is key, means feeling it. You can observe a little, a certain amount from a distance. It won't digest the experience. It'll help. It's helpful. It's a good thing to observe. But ultimately, the observing has to be right in the experience of feeling the experience. Actually, feeling the fear. This is fierce practice. This kind of practice. It means right in the body. What does the fear feel like in the body? Let the body shake. Feel the shaking from the fear. Breathe with it. It feels like I'm going to die often when we have a certain level of fear. I've never seen anybody actually die from fear. I've seen people feel like they're going to die from fear. And, and you know, and I'm, I'm talking about basically normal neurotic fear here. I'm not talking about a panic attack. If you're having panic attacks, you want to deal with that another way. You, you can deal with it with mindfulness, but it's not so easy. So partly we want to see what's happening, we want to observe it, but we also want to keep going to the most immediate level of what's the direct experience feel like in the moment. It's the same principle as being with the breath. We don't just want to observe the breath from the distance and see that we're breathing. We want to feel the total experience right here, the direct experience, the aliveness of the breath. And then we want to be able to start to transport that capacity to feel or be present right in the middle of whatever our experience is, even fear, even anger. And then we, we can start to find a freedom that's not based on managing everything or getting all the conditions right. Because we can't get all the conditions right. We can't manage everything. I mean, we can barely manage anything, to be honest. I mean, if we look at our world, it's, it's a mess. I mean, I'm not going to go there. Does <laughs> that helpful a little bit? Go ahead, follow up. I, mean, I, don't, um, I don't know how to proceed, I suppose. But I, I'm not doing so well with the whole witnessing the uh, feelings part even right now, but if I get that, then I'm... I'm still, uh, I'm trying to figure my right course to uh, at least speak of my ends, if not achieve them. Speak of your ends? Yeah. yeah. I, I guess I don't know how to proceed. Like, there's a truth, here's my fear of it. I'd like to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So, go ahead, do some things. I'm, I'm really encouraged saying, you, you know, you may have to do some things. Mindfulness doesn't mean you don't do things. Okay? Mindfulness, hopefully, as it begins to root and mature, means you have more choices about how to respond. That you don't just react habitually. But it definitely means you respond. The, the receptivity of mindfulness, like, like paying attention to what's happening, allowing things to happen, is not passivity. It doesn't mean you don't do anything. You really want, want this person? Go for it. Tell them. See what happens. The worst thing that can happen, you're not going to get. They're going to say no. You know, if they've already said no, so you still so nothing worse can happen. But you can say what's true for you, and then pay attention to all of that. All of that is practice. What it's like to say what you want. What it's like to be rejected. 
what it's like to get what you want. That's another problem that can happen. All right? Okay. Uh, this line of questioning reminds me of when your wife spoke a few weeks ago about persistence after making mistakes. And I think what I'm hearing you say uh, requires of us an abiding faith that the process will work. And it's very difficult to have that faith mm-hmm. when we're feeling the fear. Yeah. So where does, how does one develop that? Mm-hmm. Good, good question. How does one develop faith? You know, in, in Buddhism... Um, Specifically, there's a few different ways faith is talked about. And there's an initial kind of honeymoon faith when people come to Buddhism. It it makes a lot of sense. It's very commonsensical. And so a lot of people really are drawn to it. And there's a certain kind of what's called bright faith. Oh, this sounds great and I want to do this. And this sounds good and I like the way they... The attitudes of Buddhism and wisdom and compassion and kindness and the Dalai Lama, he's cool. And so there's a, kind of, there's a kind of bright faith that comes at first. But it's, it's, you know, and it's good at the beginning, it's important, but it's not enough, that's for sure. And so the question is, how does faith deepen? And faith deepens through formal practice and informal practice through actually slowly and incrementally often or sometimes very quickly um, sitting with your experience and seeing that you have the capacity. So it's very helpful to go on some retreats. If you go on, have you been on a retreat? So come sit for 10 days. It will totally challenge you. And you'll also see that you can do it. And you'll learn the skills to do it. Or five days or whatever. Um, One of the benefits of intensive practice is it can give you um, a clearer or it it will keep deepening your understanding of what we're talking about. As my friend, whose nickname was The Fluke, the fluke uh, was from Baltimore, and he went on. This is many years ago now. He went on. He came. They went to Daylong. And he talked to me at some point. He said, "Well, what about this Buddhist stuff? What do you think about this?" And I said, "It's good. Try it." And he went on a day long, and then he went on a three-day retreat, and then he went on a ten-day retreat. And he came back from the ten-day retreat, and he said, "Man, I couldn't believe it. I saw the moment unfold." <laughs> and, and then he went on a three-month retreat, right? And because something happens when, we, when you see for yourself what the Buddha is actually talking about, then the faith arises naturally. And this is called verified faith. And this is considered the most important faith in Buddhism. And the Buddha said it many times in many ways. He said, here's what I teach. Here's mindfulness, here's compassion, here's my understanding, here's suffering, here's the cause of suffering, here's freedom from suffering, here's the Eightfold Path. Come and see for yourself if it's true or not. Don't believe me. Don't believe, you know, listen to me, try it out, but see for yourself, because that's where your faith will deepen. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's just, I'm just saying this stuff from my experience. I have my faith because I've practiced and so it's, it behooves each of us to really consider, well, what do we want? Where are we putting our energies, our time, 
our resources. If we want realization, if we want understanding, if we want freedom, then it would make sense to put our energy, our time, our resources in that direction. And it can be done, and it can be done quite well as a householder. It doesn't mean you have to give up everything, but it means to start orienting our life around what's most important to us, if it's important to you. Okay, yeah, come on a retreat for a few days. It'll, 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 <clears throat> it'll open your eyes in some ways. And it's, it's, uh, it's a rite of passage because you don't know what you're getting into. Really. Thank you. Do you know of any householders who have realized who have become enlightened? Do I know any householders who have realization or become enlightened? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I've seen people on retreats at Spirit Rock get enlightened. Is enlightenment a permanent state? Or? Ah, that's a really good question. Is, is enlightenment a permanent state? <laughs> Different levels of enlightenment. Um, I think it would be more accurate to say the different interpretations of enlightenment. There are many different ways enlightenment's talked about, depending on the tradition, the teacher. Um, classically, in the Theravada, right, and insight meditation comes out of the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, there are four stages of enlightenment, and they're talked about as stream entry, once returner, non returner, arhat. And they, and technically, I can't, I won't be able to remember this list, but technically what they describe are different fetters, different attachments that are released with the realization of different levels of enlightenment. And in the fourth stage, there's no more fetters. There's ten fetters that are released. The first stage, stream entry, um, is talked about in different ways depending on the teachers in the Theravadan tradition. So you'll get different understandings of what that first stage of enlightenment is like. In, let's say, in a formal Burmese tradition like Mahasi Sayadaw, that first stage, and I've seen this, it's, it happens within generally intensive meditation practice, and there'll be a certain progress where at a certain point, the meditator will kind of plug in. They're not, they, you can't do this. So, just so you know, you can't make this happen. But if you just do your practice, at a certain point, this can happen where all of a sudden you're kind of plugged in to this archetypal schema that is described in some of the texts called the progress of insight. And it leads through these various stages of experience to what's called cessation and cessation, and this marks the first stage of enlightenment. And it happens. Um, Ajahn Chah, who is one of Jack Cornfield's teachers, who's a Thai Buddhist teacher, he would say, if you've been in the monastery for six months or a year and you haven't realized stream entry, then what are you doing here? And he's not talking about stream entry based on intensive meditation practice, more about a, just a certain level of understanding. So there's a wide interpretation of what enlightenment means. The Buddha talked about it a number of different ways. 
he, often in the negative, he talked about it as realizing the unconditioned or the, um, the non-manifest or the, the absolute or the deathless. That's a, that's a quite classic way it's described. The realization is talked about as the deathless. And, um, but he also talks about it as peace. And so many teachers will just talk about, just begin to recognize when there's peace in your heart and mind as a quality of freedom. And so it can also be talked about more poetically in a certain way. Just to look if there's freedom, if there's peace in your heart and mind. When, when the heart and mind is, is free, and this is how the Buddha said it, again, in the negative, when the heart and mind is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. Nibbana is the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, who's interpreting whether all your greed, hatred, and delusion is gone? That might be helpful to have a little consultation about that. <laughs> Okay, is that, but absolutely as householders, and I mean to the highest levels, uh, the most famous example is a woman named Deepama, and Deepa, and she was actually Deepa's mother, Deepama, and Deepama was a teacher of Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and, and Joseph Goldstein, who was a householder, who actually had been married and had children and family, and her number of children died and her husband died and was in deep grief and went to the monastery to practice and very quickly, very quickly went very deep in practice and realization. And it, it is said and some of my friends have acknowledged this that she realized that many of the psychic powers that can come with a deep level of realization, see past lives, etc., etc., there's a beautiful book about her, um, which is stories people tell about her. She taught here, she came to IMS, our, our center in Massachusetts. And, um, so you might look at that, it's really, it's quite inspiring. And she really, she believed people could get enlightened often, or, or easily as householders. And a number of her students, especially uh, in, in India where she lived, a number of her students, uh, women with families and working, were enlightened by her, with working with her. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. Does anybody know the name of the book? Knee Deep in Grace. Pardon? Knee Deep in Grace. Knee, knee Deep in Grace. Knee Deep in Grace. Thank you. Way in back there. If you could stand and... missed that part. I heard, I heard most of what you said. I missed the last part. Watching movies rather than watching the pain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I don't have time to do that. 
You don't have time to do what? So there, there are a few things to do with chronic pain, which is what you're describing, chronic pain. Which, first of all, it's important. Have you seen the book Full Catastrophe Living? So this book will be very helpful. Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn. It's a great book on how to work with <coughs> dukkha. Dukkha is suffering. Dukkha is illness. Um, and he, and it's specifically he, he taught people who were in hospital who the doctors didn't know how to help anymore. Right? A lot of people with chronic pain or chronic illness, and the doctors couldn't help them and they would send them to John. And John taught them mindfulness. And so it's really oriented towards the question you're asking. One thing to remember in working with pain, this is true of any kind of pain, but especially chronic pain, if it's going on and on, part of, the, part of your palette of skillful means is to go away from it. That's an important skillful mean because you can't be with pain, chronic pain, whether it's emotional or physical, all the time. It's, it's, it will exhaust you. And so watching a video is a skillful thing. If you can only watch videos, that's not so skillful. So working up a number of possibilities can be really helpful. So as your mindfulness builds or develops, you can start to uh, direct your attention in different ways. One way is to direct it towards the pain, to start to put your mind right in the middle of the pain, Breathe with the pain. Allow the pain. See what happens as you stay with it. If you can, be curious about it or interested in it in a kinesthetic way because pain is not solid. And at a certain level of concentration and mindfulness, you will actually start to feel the aliveness in the pain. It's moving. It's not static pain. It may first feel static. But at a certain level, you'll start, it'll start to come alive in a certain way. And, and, and what can happen as you start to, f to be able to be with the pain more is more equanimity will come, more kindness will come, more relaxation around the pain can come. Often when there's pain, our bodies will, if there's a pain in the knee, our whole body will tense up against the pain. So the first thing is to relax the secondary tension and, just, and then come more in contact with the primary um, intensity of the pain itself. And you may have to do that many, many times to keep letting the rest of the body relax. And, and I'm talking about informal meditation or if you're like lying at night and there's pain, this is a way to work with it. And then very important to breathe with it to learn how to use the breath in order to build some space and some ease and some relaxation around the pain and, and also to learn how to let your mind and heart relax even though there's pain. So then that's one skillful means. Another skillful means will, is to go into the pain and learn how to go out of the pain, both. So 
stay with the pain for 20 or 30 seconds and then come to the edge of the pain. There's some place where it's, there's not pain and feel the edge. And so it's like an in-breath and an out-breath. I'll feel the pain in the knee for 20 seconds, then I'll feel the edge more of the thigh and the lower leg where there's actually not so much pain. And I'll do that for 20 or 30 seconds. Then I'll come back to the pain and feel it more directly. So now I'm moving back and forth a little. And this helps bring balance to the mind so the mind doesn't get overwhelmed. So that tension can stay with the pain, but in a way that brings balance to our experience of being with pain. And this, the balance is a key word that we can start to find our balance more with the pain. We, we can't necessarily make the pain go away, although that can happen sometimes in meditating with pain. It can happen, but it won't be permanent generally. Um, the other, another skillful means is to feel the pain in the knee for 10 or 20 seconds and then feel the whole body sitting here. And so now the pain is a, small, is a subset of a bigger sensory experience. So feel, feeling your whole body for, for, you know, 20 seconds and then feeling, I think you said it was in the foot, the pain. And then feeling that. And then feeling the whole body. Or feeling the, just feeling the pain within the whole body and breathing with that whole experience. And then one more skillful means is to actually go away from the pain totally. Focus on the, on the breath right at the nostrils, right here. Learn how to concentrate here as a way to get away from the pain sometimes. And then the last skillful mean is video. Is, you know. And an and appropriate medication when needed is also helpful. Does that fill out the picture a little bit? And full catastrophe living will describe a lot of this and will be a really good support. Okay. Let's go here. I just wanted to, I just wanted to make a comment um, to you. There is a course, the mindfulness based production course that goes on UCSS. Mm -hmm. the, the course that John Cabotin uh, talked about in Book of Catastrophe Living, Making Healthy Deal with Chronic Pain. So yeah. if you get on the website at UCSS, look for the Osher Center. I don't think she can hear. Let, let me say it all. Thank you. So what she was just saying was the course from Full Catastrophe Living, there's an eight-week meditation course specifically to work it with people with chronic pain illness. And there's, it's at UCSF. It's actually at Kaiser Hospital, a number of different hospitals. And you can take the eight-week course that's based on the work of John Kabat-Zinn. And I've taught the course in hospitals. I did for a number of years. It's a great course. Gail, you want to say something? I just want to say there's also Darlene Cohen's book, which is incredible. I'm saying that work with meditation and things. And courses that she teaches at the center. Okay. She's amazing. She's she had such severe pain in her life. Great. So Darlene Cohen also has a book called uh, Transforming Pain into something. It's joy. into joy, something like that. It's, it's an... Pardon? Money, maybe? No. no. Um, Darlene Cohn, and she teaches at Zen Center about working with pain. She's a wonderful teacher. The 
the use of imagination and concentration practice. Other meditation objects. You know, I, I mostly just talk about what I have practiced. So the two that I know the best are the breathing, the whole body breathing, and, and Brahma Vihara practice, metta practice. And metta practice is quite imaginative, actually. Right? For those of you who don't know, metta practice is loving kindness practice. And it's a practice where you say, repeat the phrases of invoking loving kindness. And you, um, and formally, when you do this formally on retreat, basically 24-7, you'll start with yourself, let's say, or a benefactor, and you start by imagining an image of yourself that evokes some sense of kindness and warmth and care. Or, or if you, your benefactor, you might have a picture of them and, and the sense of the warmth and care, love that might come. And then you say the phrases, may you be safe, protected, free from inner and outer harm. May you abide in happiness. May you be, uh, may your body support your awakening. May you uh, live with ease of well-being. These are the four most traditional, which are, may you be safe, uh, happy, healthy, and live with ease. These are four very traditional phrases. And then you can customize the phrases in, in any way that works for you, that really speaks from your heart. And so there's a tremendous amount of both imagination and creativity um, and um, imagery that is used with that concentration practice. It's a concentration practice. You say the phrases over and over again. I, I, I was actually doing it at the end of the meditation tonight. I don't do it so much these days, but I have some family members who are suffering, and I was doing some loving kindness for them. And, um, and I was noticing how quickly I was getting concentrated as I was doing it, how refined the concentration was. Does that answer your question a little bit? Um, there's different ways that's talked about. Uh, often in, in um, concent- this is technical, but often in concentration practice, they talk about that there's an image that comes with the concentration, and you let go of the first object and focus on the image. It's called the nimitta. And, but I don't do that kind of concentration practice, so I, I can't speak to it really well. But I think that's what you're talking about. It's more this, it's, it's a sign. And, and it's not like, in deep concentration, I've had lots of signs. But, uh, but the technique that I've learned, you don't work with them in that way. But like Sayadaw, um, Pa'ak Sayadaw works with that. Or um, a, a number of teachers do. Bhante Gunaratna works with it. Um, but I've worked more in a different tradition that... Just, you, you just notice the different signs that come. You don't go. You stay with the breath the whole time, and you can move to you can move from access to jhana either way. Okay. Last question.
Yeah. Would you So would I use metta to try and become more concentrated to overcome some of the unwholesome states? Yeah, unskillful. Or unskillful states. Right. Yeah, you could do that. If you're having a hard time with them, it's one of the skillful things at times would be to go away from it and do metta to get more balance, more ground, more concentration, and then later to open up to it again with that balance and ground. But very important to watch our aversion to unskillful states. It's really, it's really kind of interesting how states we don't like are unskillful. That, that's a very important question. Is it a way of pushing away certain states? And, and, it's, and nobody can quite answer that for you. But to, we want to pay attention to our intention in how we're relating to ourselves. So partly we could do metta in order to concentrate or collect ourselves, but partly we could do metta for our self-experiencing this state that's hard to experience. And do metta for the state, for the anger and for me and for I don't know what to do, but do metta for, for ourselves. And that can start to ground us with the experience instead of going away from the experience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.